0: So as many of you know, uh, we're a part of the fellowship called the, the Assemblies of God. And one of the things that the Assemblies of God does is they put out a magazine called the Insight masking. Um And I was recently reading their, their most recent issue, and there was an article in there about a man named Martin Luther. And this article talked about Martin Luther's um, contribution to uh, the church history, and was talking about it being the 500-year an- um, anniversary of the Reformation. So I, I don't, at least myself, I wasn't very familiar with Martin Luther. So as I started reading up on him a little bit, because the article kind of got me curious, um, I, I, it, I um, learned a lot about him, and it kind of tied in with our, our, the message that I have for tonight. And so I'd like to, to kind of open up, just a little bit longer of an opening tonight, but to, to give kind of an overview of Martin Luther's life. So Martin Luther um, came from a, a slightly better than most homes but not really rich, not really poor. We probably call him today middle class. And his father looked on Luther after he was born as kind of his retirement plan. Because um, back then they didn't have social security. So if they wanted to ever retire, they, they, they would look to their children as their retirement plan to be able to support them as they got older and unable to work themselves. And so he, he looked to Luther and he, he really wanted him to be a lawyer so that he'd be able to provide for him well as, as he got older. And so Luther went to school, and he graduated from what we would call today from high school, and he picked up a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And these were all, back then, they were all fairly general. There wasn't any specific focus on them. But once you completed the master's degree, this would open the door for you to to pursue a professional degree. At the time, there were three professional degrees that you could pursue. You could pursue medicine if you wanted to be a doctor. You could pursue law if you wanted to become a lawyer, or you could uh, pursue theology if you wanted to become a theologian. And so kind of giving in to what his father wanted, he started his law degree, but less than a semester in, he has two near-death experiences, and it shakes him to his core, and he comes to grips with his own mortality, and he starts to dwell on life after death, and he starts to wonder where he would end up, if he would have died in, in, those, in those couple of instances. And so he does something that shocks everybody. He drops out of school, and he joins a monastery. And he takes the vows of, of a monk. And, he, and he, he goes into the life of being a monk, and he does this for some time. But he's very surprised to find that it doesn't give him, being, being a monk didn't give him any more security than he had before when he was in school. And this begins to weigh on him. But later, Martin or Luther is identified as someone with high potential, and so he's picked out to to start down the road to become a priest. And he's ordained in 1507, and he begins leading the services. And one thing leads to another, and he ends up having to go to Rome, which was the which was the central hub of the church back then. Um, and later, he would write that the closer he got to Rome, the better the food got. The closer he got to Rome, the better the lodging was and the higher the standard of living. And when he got to Rome itself, it was the highest he had ever seen it. And so while he's there, you know, he visits all the holy places. He, um, he, he preaches in all the places that priest-priests would preach there uh, whenever they were in town. And he later reflected on it, saying that everywhere that he looked, he saw corruption. And this troubled him greatly. And after he, after some time after he was in Rome, he completed his doctoral degree. He completed his professional degree and became and became a teacher of theology. Now, most teachers of theology back then, they would just merely read the commentary, so someone's opinion of the scripture, and they would uh, really just regurgitate that back. To, to their students. But Luther was well-studied, and he, he was really into to, to digging into God's word and finding out the truth for himself. So he was digging into the original Greek, because at the time there was only two approved translations for the church. There was either Greek, um, or there was, um, um, totally lost it. <laughs> uh, but there was only two, uh, Latin was the other one, sorry. So there was either Greek or Latin were the only two approved translations uh, for the church at the time. And so he was digging into the original text, into, into the Greek, and trying to find the, the, the truth in the scripture itself. And there was one um, kind of thing that was taught at the church that, at that point in time, and it was, the thought, it was the concept of penance. And basically what this meant is that when he did something wrong, and he went to the priest, and, and they would dissolve you of your sins, they would give you some penance. They would give you some action to complete in order to, to atone for the sin that you had done. But Luther, as he was reading through the Greek, he, he couldn't find this concept of penance anywhere in the translation. So he goes back and he reads it in, in the Latin. And he, what he finds is, is he astonishes him, that, that he's pretty sure that they mistranslated the Latin. And by the, through that mistranslation, it created this idea of penance. And so in his, in his classrooms, he started teaching about, teaching out the Greek, te- teaching about God's grace, teaching about God's love, instead of penance he, he, would, he would put it this way it's not about God it's not about us climbing up to God it's about God coming down to us and this and another practice that we don't really have time to, to really dig into that was happening at the church at the time called indulgences um, and basically what was happening is people were buying these indulgences from the church and they were using them kind of as a get-out-of-jail-free card. They would they'd buy these indulgences, and then they would go knowingly sin and say, well, I got it covered. I have this indulgence that covers it. And so these two, really those two practices, the, the idea of penance and the idea of indulgences, really drove him to write a document that he's famous for today. His 95 Theses. And these, the, the, these his 95 Theses were 95 Ideas. Ninety-five things that he wanted to to have a discussion about, he wanted to have a debate about among the intellectual community. He wanted to discover the truth about these things. And so he mails them to a few influential people in the church, but he also takes a copy. He takes it down to the, the church, and on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago yesterday, he nails it to the door of the church. You know, and we can look at that through the, the lens of the 21st century and go, yeah, he nailed it to the door of the church. He's going to show them. But if you look at it really through the lens of a, of a person living in the 1500s, it wasn't really that, that, that grand of a thing. It was really kind of commonplace. If there were things that you wanted to discuss or to debate, that, that, was, the, that was the avenue you would take. You'd go down, nail it to the door because there was no Internet. There was no newspapers. There's no other way to really communicate it out. And so that's how they would do it. But the church at the time, they wanted to kind of sweep it under the rug. So they just pretty much tried to ignore it, hoping it would go away. Because whenever Luther did this, he would written it in Latin, and not very many people spoke Latin. So they were just hoping it would all go away. But, if, but a, a, a commoner who was able to read the, the Latin and translate it into the common language at the time, which was uh, German... He was translated it into German, and also in the 1500s, the, 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 the printing press was invented, and so the, his message of these 95 theses spread like wild. It gained massive popularity, and people were enamored by the ideas that they were that they were reading. Ideas like you no longer have to go to the to, to the church and have a priest uh, absolve you of your sins. You no longer had to practice penance. Salvation is by grace alone. And this was, uh, and once this was becoming widely popular, the church decided that they were going to have to address it, and so they chose to address it as uh, calling it an attack on the head of the church itself, which at the time was the pope, and as well as the church as a whole. And the last person that had tried this, the last person that had done an attack against against the pope, was a man by the name of John Huss, and he was labeled a heretic and he was burned at the stake. And on April 14, 1521, Martin Luther was summoned to a diet of worms, what they called it. And we lose it a little bit through the years, but a diet is simply an assembly, and worms was the name of the town where the, the assembly was taking place. So a diet of worms is simply an assembly in the city of worms. And one of Luther's devoted friends who heard that he had been summoned there sent a messenger to him and said, don't come to worms. Lest you, will, lest you will suffer the same fate as John Huss. And Luther simply replied, Though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. I shall go to Worms. And so a couple of days later, Luther shows up in the city of Worms. And though he showed up during, the, during dinner time, 2,000 people came out to meet him on the street. His his message had spread that far and wide and was that popular. The following day, he he had a slot on the agenda at the Diet of Worms, but he was very last on the agenda, around 4 o'clock. And he was called up at 4 o'clock, and he stood before Charles the Great, Heir of the line of Catholic sovereigns, of Maximilian the Romantic, Lord of Austria, Burgundy, and the Low Countries, Spain, Naples, and the Holy Roman Emperor, ruling over a more vast domain than any, save Charlemagne. So needless to say, people who got up in front of him, who, who were charged by him, were, were often intimidated. But Luther got up in front of him, and a man named Jonan Eck was, was the prosecutor. And after some, some conversation, discussion, some, um, uh, by, by Eck, he points to a table that has some of Luther's books on it, his 95 thesis, and he says, are, are these your writings? And Luther said, yes, they appear to be. And then Eck says to him, are you willing now to renounce what you have said and return to the church? And Luther said the only sensible thing he could say at the time can, we have, can I have a recess so I can go pray about it and come back and give you my answer? And so they granted him a 24-hour recess. And some of his prayer from that night is recorded in his journal that still exists today. I'll just read you a portion of it. Oh, thou, my God, my God, help me against the reason and wisdom of, the, of all the world. Do this. Thou must do this. Thou alone. For this cause is not mine, but thine. For myself, I have no business here with the great lords of the the world. Indeed, I too desire, desire to enjoy the days of peace and quiet and to be undisturbed. But thine, O Lord, is this cause and is righteous and eternal importance. Stand by me, thou faithful eternal God. I rely on no man. The next day, he's called back to the stand. And there's a similar exchange with Eck. And, um, and this, that's when he gives one of his most famous replies that a lot of people know is fairly popular. And it says, uh, Since your majesty and your Lord's desire is simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convicted by the scripture and the plain and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils of men, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And the room fell silent. They didn't know what to do, so they did the only logical thing. They adjourned for the day. And this is one of the great moments in church history. But how did Martin Luther come to such great heroics? I believe the answer is simple. I believe it's because he knew the will of God. He knew that that through careful examination of God's word, he knew the will of God. He knew that it was God's will for him to go to worms and declare the truth of the word, regardless of any potential consequences. And more importantly than just knowing the will of God, he chose to act on it. And that is what sets him apart. If you've been here the last several times that I've spoken, you know that we've been kind of talking, uh, kind of working our way through the book of Acts. We've been talking about Paul's first, second, and third missionary journey. And tonight we're going to pick up with the very end of his third missionary journey in in Acts chapter 21. If you want to go ahead and start turning there, we'll be there in just a moment. Acts chapter 21. You see, Paul too, like Luther, was a man that knew God's will, and he acted on God's will. In the case of Acts chapter 21, God's will was for Paul to go to Jerusalem and to minister to the church there, even though it could and ultimately would lead to hardship for him. So at the very end of chapter 20, we won't uh, read that part, but at the very end of chapter 20, um, uh, Paul has a tearful goodbye with the church at Ephesus and the leaders there um, you see, he, he tells them that he's leaving and he likely will not return because of the hardship and prison that, that are head of him. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight in Acts chapter twenty-one, verse one. And when we departed from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and then to the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we bo- we went aboard and set sail. And and when we and when we had come to, in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and land and, and to landed, landed at Tyre, uh, for the ship was unloaded. For the ship was to unload its cargo, if I can read. Uh, so, so Paul has just left Ephesus. And he's starting to go, uh, learn the joys of sea travel, of the nonstop, time-consuming stops along the way um, as they unload and load cargo to, uh, on their way to Patara. Uh, and then he books a nonstop ticket, 400 miles, voyage to Tyre. And though it may not uh, uh, really look at it, look like it, like if you read through the scripture, but he's really racing against the clock. You see, he wants to get back to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. Let's pick up in verse four. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And, all, and they all, with their wives and children, accompanied us until they were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said our farewells to, the, to one another. And then we went aboard the ship, and they returned to their home. So they're in the city of Tyre, and Tyre is a major port city, and they knew they would be there for seven days while the ship unloaded their cargo, and the the cargo was delivered, and the new cargo was taken on board the ship. And so Paul did the only thing that was natural to him at this point. is he's become kind of a, a normal thing for him. When he comes into a new city, he goes and seeks out other Christians, other disciples. And he comes and he finds some, and he builds, guess, immediate builds, uh, immediately finds rapport with them, for they're his brothers and his sisters. And he spends time encouraging him, and everything is going great, until one small little wrinkle, and we see it in verse 4, where it says, uh, And through the Spirit they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And I'll tell you, this verse is a verse that is, is quite controversial among theologians, because there's one of two ways that you can take it. And I'll start with probably the way I don't think it's meant to be taken. And that's that Paul disobeys the, the Spirit and continues on to Jerusalem even though it's telling him not to. But I think if you look at it through 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 the context of the rest of the chapter, of the rest of the book, um, and, and through some of other Paul's other writings, I think it's fairly obvious that that's not necessarily how it's meant to be taken. I think instead it's it's probably better to have been taken that the Spirit revealed to them what was about to happen to Paul, that he was going to be taken prisoner in in Jerusalem and that he was going to suffer. And then their own personal emotions kind of kicked in and went above and beyond that and said, oh, we care about your well-being. We care about the well-being of our new friend and urged him not to go. And it must have been rough on Paul as they kept urging him not to go. But when their time together had ended, they didn't just say, well, fine, if that's what you're going to do, go do it. No, they showed their support. They walked with them out the city, and they all prayed together on the beach, probably for his safe travels. Let's pick up in verse 7. And when they had finished their voyage from Tyre, they arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And, th- and there we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. And we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While they were staying with him for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his, ha- his own hands and feet. And he said, thus saith the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when and when we had heard this, we and the other people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So after a day in Ptolemaeus, they, they arrive at Caesarea, uh, which is the port city of Jerusalem of Jerusalem. It's a, it's a mere day's walk up from, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So they had made it in time for Pentecost, but there's a few days to spare, and Paul doesn't want to get there until Pentecost. So they they linger at at, their, at his friend's house, Philip. This is the same Philip who, who took the gospel to Samaria and baptized the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch. This is the same Philip who was who, as it says, is one of the seven, one of the seven that were chosen to to handle the distribution of the food for the early church, so that the disciples could concentrate on 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 solely on their ministry. And at this point. God has blessed Philip with, with some daughters who it says that they prophesied. It doesn't say specifically that they prophesied over Paul, but it's very likely that they did. And then enters Agabus and with the with the same drama of a pre-exile prophet the, uh, of like Ezekiel. He comes, Ezekiel, who foretold the, the, the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem by building a model of the city, building the siege ramps at, at God's direction, and then destroying the model, saying that this would happen to Jerusalem. In that same kind of drama, Agabus comes up with the same type of fervor and intensity and ties himself up and says, this would happen to Paul. It doesn't really say whether or not Agabus kind of joined in with the saying that he shouldn't go up to Jerusalem or not. But it definitely says that his friend sure did. In verse 12, it says, When we heard this, we and the other people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This pronoun we indicates that the author of the book of Acts is, is, is joining into this. And Luke is predominantly thought to be the, uh, the, the author of the book of Acts. So this implies that Luke, one of Paul's closest and dearest friends, was joining in, urging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Can you imagine the pressure? For months now, he's been prophesied about his, his future persecution. A heart-wrenching farewell with the Ethiopian or with the Ephesian um, elders. A tear-tear-jerking a uh, goodbye with the, the, his, his new friends in Tyre. Agabus' dr- dramatic prophecy, and now everyone, including his trusted friend Luke, is begging Paul to turn back. Can you imagine the pressure? Now let's take a look at. Uh, at Paul's response in verse thirteen, then Paul answered, "What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." So Paul tells him, "You're tearing me apart." And then the great, and then the, the apostle Paul re, re, uh, renews his resolve to continue on to Jerusalem. Continue on to the path that God has called him to. Let's look at verse 14. And since, and, and since He would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, "Let the will of the Lord be done." And these, day, and, and these days we got, and after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. and some of the disciples uh, of, of Caesarea went with us bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So thus ends the epic third missionary journey of Paul, refusing to compromise, and, uh, refusing to compromise, but instead follow God's will and continue on to Jerusalem. And with the same, with the same courage and fortitude of Luther saying, though Hus was burned, and, and the tr- but the truth was not burned. And Christ still lives, I shall go to worms. Paul is heading up to Jerusalem. He's heading up to his worms. So you might be saying tonight, all right, this is a great story about Luther. There's a great story about Paul, but how does it relate to us tonight? So I suspect there's some people in here tonight. I suspect there's some people in here tonight that are probably wrestling with a crucial decision in their life and wondering what God's will is for their lives. And there's probably some other people in here tonight who know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God has called them to do, but they're not sure if they're going to be able to follow through with it. And so I believe that, that the story of Luther and the story of Paul's struggles offers us some helpful insights on how we should respond. So first and foremost, we must discover what God's will is for our lives. For Luther, this looked like spending hours in time and prayer and studying the Bible And letting God speak to him through it. Letting God reveal the truth to him. And letting this truth grow in him and and become a discontentment in his spirit. With how things were in his life, in his ministry, and in his present situation. And this discontentment continued to grow and grow and grow. And it developed into a passion. A passion to see things change. And at, and, at, and at that point where his discontentment and his passion met, that is where he found the will of God for his life. For Paul, it starts back in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, where, right back at his conversion, where God is speaking, and it says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then more specifically in Acts 19 and 21, uh, where, where, where the Holy Spirit reveals, reveals to him that he must go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. So for Paul, it was through a close personal relationship with God that it allowed God's will to be revealed to him. And probably best illustration of this is Paul's second missionary journey that we talked about before. After he picked up his, his, his new traveling companion, Timothy, and they're, heading, they're coming from east, they're heading west, and they're like, hey, let's drop south and go into Asia. And the Holy Spirit's like, uh, no, that's not the right way. And so they're like, well, then maybe God must want us to go north up to Bithia. And so they turn north and God's like, no, nope, that's not the way either. And they came from the west. They couldn't go south. They couldn't go north. Still the direction the left was west. And God took them on further and further west until they reached the, the city of um, Troas. And there God revealed to him that he was to go up to Macedonia and share the gospel with them there. And it it took a great sensitivity to God's Spirit, to God's Holy Spirit. And the only way to nurture this is by spending time with God. So if you're trying to determine God's will for your life tonight, you too have to have a close personal relationship with God. You have to nurture it. You have to nurture your relationship with Him so you can hear His Holy Spirit and hear where He's leading you. And the only way to do this is by spending time with Him, spending time reading your Bible, spending time in prayer. And once you're able to hear His Holy Spirit, look for things that that He wells up in you that cause discontentment in your life. Look for things that He wells up in you that cause passion in your life. And look for where they overlap. And you will likely find God's will for your life. So once you determine what God's will is for your life, the, the, the next important thing is that you act on it and that you follow through with what he's calling you to do. So for Luther, this looked like... For Luther knew that he was supposed to go to Worms. He knew it in his, in his spirit, he knew it deep down. So when his friends came to him and said that he shouldn't go lest he would be burned... Luther had already decided in his spirit that he would go. And so with the same fervency as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who who said, our God can save us, but even if he does not, we will not bow. Luther says that he would go to worms. Paul knew what God's will was for his life. And he held to it firmly. And even though droves of people kept telling him not to go through with it, Paul was not a man-pleaser. We see that in Galatians 1 and verse 10, where it says, For am am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he's not a man-pleaser. He is a God-pleaser. Sometimes that means that he had to play to an audience of one because Paul knew what God had called him to do he knew that no matter how much people were trying to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem he had to go so once you determine what God's will is for your life or if you already know what God's will is for your life your task is simple it's simply to do it to do God's will for your life even if there's a risk of persecution you need to do it even If there's a whole bunch of people telling you not to do it, you need to do it. Even if your closest and best friend says you shouldn't do it, if God has called you to do it, you should do it. Even if you end up playing to an audience of one, you should do it. If you know God's will, you must act and you must do it. So Ken, if you want to go ahead and come back, I'm going to start wrapping up. So now I'd like to wrap up by, by finishing up the story of Martin Luther. So Martin uh, had, had given his defense, they had adjourned, and, and the next day, they, they, they reconvene, and they, they sentenced him as a heretic. And not just a heretic, but an outlaw. And that meant that, that anybody could come up to him and could kill him, and there would be no repercussions for that person. He was fair game. Uh, But one of Luther's closest friends heard about this, and he gathered together four of his close friends, and he said, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go and kidnap Luther. I don't want you to tell me where you're going to hide him, but I want you to hide him away. And so they did that. They went and they kidnapped Luther, and they hid him away. And they disguised him, and they hid him in plain sight, and no one saw him for many years, even though he was in plain sight. But God had a mission for him while he was in hiding. He had a mission for him while he was in hiding, he was to translate the entire New Testament. As I mentioned earlier, the, 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 the Bible only had two approved translations at the time, Latin and Greek. No one uh, really spoke Greek at the time, and very few people spoke Latin. And so it was very hard for people to get anything out of the services, because the services were conducted in Latin too. So it was more of a spectator sport. So he, he translates the entire Bible from Greek into German because he believed that people deserved to be able to study the gospel for themselves and not just have someone tell them what it says and what it should mean, but so that they could discover the truths themselves. And this was a big deal, because in the 1500s, there was the invention of the uh, the printing press. And so the first mass production of Bibles happened, and they were able to, to go out and people uh, and the, uh, the tr- people were no longer spectators in their own relationship with the Lord, but they were able to dig in and find the truths for themselves. <coughs> and the truth ran wild, and the reformation of the church started. And it has far reaching implications even now, 500 years later. So tonight, I want to open these altars and give you guys some time to spend some time in prayer. First and foremost, I want you to consider. What is God calling you to do? Spend time and ask Him. Is He asking you to take an ethical stand at work? Is He asking you to admit that you're wrong about something? Is He calling you to give to the church or calling you to volunteer in the church? Is He calling you to preach or to be a missionary? Would you spend some time and ask Him? And then once God reveals to you what He has called you to do, once you spend some time praying that he would give you the courage and that he would give you the fortitude to be able to to go through with it. And lastly tonight, as, as we leave, take time to write down what God has called you to do. Take time to share it with someone and spend time praying about it. Let God confirm that that's what he has called you to do. And once you're sure that's what he has called you to do, the next important step is to follow through. So tonight, I'd like to open these altars or make an altar where you're at and spend some time with in prayer. And catch you, C.J. I'll come back here.
1: Going down once a month to uh, Texas, uh, part of Brian Jarrett's Water Tower Ministry to young pastors uh, of, of smaller churches, and he was describing how God had really unfolded uh, what he called the sweet spot in his life of serving God. That uh, he came from a life of abuse and then troubled home, and uh, his own own drinking. And he said, and said then at a point where, where God he could not sleep at night with what he called his holy discontentment, uh, that until he reached others who had the same issue now they have this huge ranch for for troubled kids uh, for abused kids and he, he said he said when your your passion that the Lord has given you intersects with your past and your pain when that all intersects you find the sweet spot where God's got to you many many people let their past defeat them from what God wanted to use their past to do think of Apostle Paul, who was Saul. He was going on his way for the very thing that he used to carry out, thinking he was doing it for God, but he was persecuting the Christians. He was on his way to intersect his past, his passion, and the pain was on its way, but that's exactly where God wanted him. And sometimes we pray, God, help me avoid the pain. I'll serve you, but you know, this is too painful or I'm not ready. And we try to put so many pre qualifiers on it. And then we've got other voices, you know, people who are well meaning saying, well, you know, that will never work or wait until God provides the finances or what. And, you know, I've told you before, that could be a 20 year journey like it was for me, having to call in my life and wait until God, uh, until I paid off my debt, until before I go serve God or until I had this done and and it wasn't until my wife and I just said God we will go and we'll believe you to take care of the rest and the doors just flew open and so whatever God has got you to do as as, uh, Nathan preached tonight like Paul like, like the others who have been in that spot you look for that spot where God can take your past your passion and the pain of that past and put you right where he wants you and use you greatly. Who, who greater in the word has been used by the Apostle Paul? I mean, what a great, 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 great testimony for us to read about. Amen. I love you. Keep in mind, uh, Sunday morning, we have 9 and 11, uh, and uh, there's some uh, new families that have started visiting, and I, I'd love it if uh, y'all would just love on them when they come. I, I think we have a few that are re- planned to return, and so be praying for those. Be praying for the service ahead of time. Again, thank you, Pastor Wheat, and uh, uh, all that came with you and our RV volunteers. Love you, God bless you, and have a safe trip home.